Good morning, everyone. If you'll leave your Bibles open to John chapter 12, we'll be covering John chapter 12 and a little bit of John chapter 13 this morning as well. For those of us who were once children, anybody here who doesn't fall in that category? You always, uh, when you grew up, you always experienced some corrective behavior, some corrective action from your, from your parents for behavior. Uh, sometimes it was negative correction, right? You did something that you shouldn't have done and your parents corrected you for it. Sometimes it was positive behavior, positive reinforcement of, of your behaviors. You've done something right and your parents praised you for it. What I'd like to look at today is in these two chapters of the Gospel according to John, some positive and some negative lessons. Some lessons that we have that scripture tells us uh, to reinforce positive behaviors, to reinforce what we should be doing as believers in Christ. And yet in these two chapters, we also see a number of illustrations of negative uh, corrections, of behaviors that are not correct um, and were corrected by Jesus. But there's some unexpected lessons that we have in here, some unexpected um, messages that if we look at these passages closely, I think we can see um, beyond what we typically cover uh, in these stories. So again, we have to realize that as parents, uh, we're responsible for your children, for your parents, we're responsible for you, and it's necessary to, to correct both with positive and with negative, hopefully more with the positive than with the negative. But both are essential for proper development. Um, we often love the positive reinforcement. We love being told that you're doing the right things, keep doing it. The negative reinforcement, not so much. Um, we really need to listen, however, to both positive and negative corrections. I want us to note how Jesus deals with people in these two chapters. And in fact, these two chapters are consistent with how he dealt uh, with sinners across the board. Um, not only those who were doing what he wanted them to do, but for those of us who fell short as well. Christ never humiliated anyone, and he always told the truth. And what are the lessons that we can take from these two chapters uh, of the gospel according to John? Let's take a quick overview of chapter 12 of the, the, uh, the gospel according to John. It's important to realize that chapters 12 and 13 are a very important transition in the gospel. The story up to this point has been his ministry has been his teaching. He's been going through uh, day after day with his apostles, uh, ministering, uh, performing miracles, a number of signs throughout the Gospel according to John. And we see that these stories are told um, to bring people to an understanding of who he was as the Messiah, as the Christ, the Son of God. In chapters 12 and 13, we begin a transition to the last week of his life. He realizes that his sacrifice is coming to a point. He realizes he's, it's coming to the time where he will be giving up his life. And chapters 12 and 13 are a very important part of that transition from teaching into the steps up to the crucifixion. Chapters 13 through 17 are, in fact, that transition. And chapters 18 through 20 are the crucifixion and the resurrection. So these, these two chapters, 12 and 13, are a very important part of the story of Christ's life. So let's look again at the first 11 verses of the chapter 12. What happens in the very beginning of chapter 12? It's important to realize the chapter before, what had happened? Lazarus had been raised from the dead. He had been dead for four days, four days. In fact, uh, when he was brought uh, back from the dead, Jesus brought him forth and he was still bound with those linen cloths. 
So what makes it important in the beginning of chapter 12 is to realize that Lazarus is mentioned three times by name in the beginning of chapter 12. Why is that important? It's easy to glance over that. But let's realize that, that Lazarus was the only person who had been brought back from the dead, that Christ brought him back from the dead, and he continued to be with Jesus. He continued to remain with Jesus after his resurrection. And so, in fact, Lazarus was something of a marvel. So when people heard about Lazarus's resurrection, the fact that he was sitting with Jesus was reaffirming the power that Jesus had to bring people back from the dead. And in fact, that was the message that Jesus had been uh, preaching. He was the, the way, the truth, and the life. He was the living water, the bread of life. And through him, uh, and through him alone, could man come back to God. And so let's take a look and see what the lessons are that we can gain from the first 11 verses and Mary's anointing of Jesus' feet. First off, it's important to realize that she used expensive perfume. She brought a very expensive uh, pure nard, it's described, um, and it was something that wouldn't typically be used for washing feet. I heard someone uh, who lived over in the Middle East uh, say he went around Jerusalem for a day, and when he got back home, uh, his feet were absolutely filthy. He was wearing sandals, and the dirt and the grime of the city just really clung to his feet. And it's amazing to realize how simple an act of washing somebody's feet can take on new meaning. It's not just that you peel off your socks and, you know, somebody, it's, a, you know, maybe a little distasteful. This is really, really filthy work that Mary is doing. Not only is she doing it, but what is she using to wipe, her, wipe Jesus' feet? She's using her own hair. And yet it says that the smell of the perfume filled the whole house. The beauty of the act that she was performing and the, the anointment that she was performing of Jesus' feet was that perfume, was the smell that anointed the whole house. And those who have, would have smelled it would have recognized the act of honor that she was performing for Jesus. The time that she was spending to recognize who he was and to humiliate herself, to humble herself, to clean his feet and to wipe his feet with her own hair. But Jesus was upset. And we look at that and we say, well, wait a second. She spent a lot of money on this nard, this perfumed ointment that came in, and all she did was wash Jesus' feet. It's a lot of money. Judas said, wait a second. You could have taken that money and you could have spent it and helped the poor. But why was he saying that? What were his motives in complaining that, that Mary had spent this money on perfume just to wash Jesus' feet? Why was Judas so interested that this should have been spent on the poor? Well, we have a little insight into Judas that we wouldn't normally have had. This is not conversation. This is not discussion. This is not a communication between two different people. But the gospel writer tells us that Judas was not interested in helping the poor. He was not interested in the money going to help people who really needed it. Let's take a look at verse 6. What does it tell us in verse 6? It simply says, now Judas said this not because he was worried or concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. That's an interesting comment, an interesting detail that's put in there. We wouldn't understand that if, it, if the gospel writer hadn't put that in. We wouldn't know that Judas had stolen from the, uh, the collection the apostles kept. We wouldn't know that. We wouldn't have any sense of that. What that tells us is that tells us the inner workings of Judas's heart. That tells us why 
he was asking that the money should have been saved not for the poor, but given to the apostles, and then the apostles would have distributed it. But Judas would have skimmed a little bit off the top, would have taken a little bit for himself, slipped a little bit into his own pocket for his own good. That's the message that we have here. And so we see two positive lessons. The first lesson is that Mary was willing to humble herself, to put herself on her knees in front of Christ and to wash his feet, to spend all this money to anoint him, to recognize who he was. And Jesus himself said he recognized that it was for his burial, that she was preparing him. And so we see the positive lesson that Mary is honoring the son as we're called to do. A few chapters earlier in John chapter 5 and verse 23, we read, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is the exact opposite of that. Mary was honoring the Father by honoring the Son. By the very fact that she was anointing Jesus' feet, she was honoring his Father. And that's the positive lesson that we have to emulate, to copy. But what's the negative lesson? The negative lesson is Judas was rebuked for his attitude. The poor you will always have with you, Jesus says, but I will not always be with you. But remember the detail that we read in verse 6? What's missing from that rebuke? What isn't in what Jesus said to Judas? Did Jesus say anything about, you're stealing from the coffers and we're going to take away the control of the money? We're going to take the purse because we know you've been skimming off the top. But wait a second. That's not right. He shouldn't be stealing. Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew who Judas was. And we realize that 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 lesson for us is not just that Judas was rebuked for his attitude, but he was corrected for what he did not realize, that she was honoring him for his death rather than honoring the poor. So, however, why don't we ask ourselves, why doesn't he rebuke Judas for stealing from the money pot? Why doesn't he correct Judas for something he knew that Judas was already doing, stealing? Why would Jesus not correct him? Now, it's impossible to say because the scriptures don't tell us. This is the only place where Judas is told, we're told, uh, stole from the, the apostles' money. And yet we can hypothesize, we can look and understand what was Jesus trying to focus on. Jesus was trying to focus on who he was and the reason he came. The reason he came was so that we can have hope of eternal life through that connection to the Father, through his sacrifice. His focus wasn't about money. His focus wasn't about a couple of dollars here or there that he, Judas may have stolen. Jesus wasn't focused on the pot. He was focused on the heart. He wasn't focused on the money. He wasn't focused on things of this world. He was focused on attitude. And he was focused on what people's focus was. was were they looking at him as Christ, the Messiah, as the one who came to save us from our sins? Or were they looking at him as just another teacher? What was their focus? So I believe that Jesus is telling us implicitly that our focus shouldn't be on money. It should be on who he is. In John chapter 12 and verses 44 through 50, we see the end of the chapter where he brings this message up clearly. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me but does, does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. <clears throat> 
I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, he has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself has sent me. He has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. So we see that the lesson for us is we need to honor the Father, and we honor the Father through honoring the Son. So in the beginning of chapter 13, there's a transition. It's important to note that the chapters are not immediately sequential. Chapter 12 does not end in chapter 13 pick up immediately. It's important to note that there are actually quite a few things that happen between chapters 12 and chapter 13 of John. You have chapters in Matthew chapter 21 through 26, Mark chapters 11 through 14, and Luke chapters 20 through 22. All are events that happen between the end of John chapter 12 and the beginning of John chapter 13. So there's quite a bit of time that goes in between these two. But yet when we look at the gospel according to John, we realize that these chapters are right next to each other. Of course, they weren't written in chapters. Chapters were added later. But the stories were very close together. Even though not chronologically, we have to wonder why they're there together and they're there thematically. At the beginning of chapter 12 that we read earlier, Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. She recognizes who Jesus is. She casts a model for who we are to be to follow Jesus. And what do we see at the beginning of chapter 13? As I mentioned before, chapters 12 and 13 are a transition. And the first four verses are a critical part of that transition to understand the mindset of Jesus as he was preparing for his death. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. During supper, this devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. So we see right here that Jesus recognizes that he's soon to be going back to the Father. And we see that Judas himself was now um, decided to betray Christ. He had made the decision, and he would betray him. And Jesus himself knew that this would come to pass. And so we see, in fact, from verses 5 on in chapter 13, uh, an interesting mirror to what happened at the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus himself decides to kneel down before the apostles and to wash their feet. Why would Jesus do that? And why would it happen so close after Mary had anointed Jesus' feet? So we see, in fact, that in verse 2, Judas had decided that he would betray Jesus. Jesus, of course, knew that. Just as Jesus knew that Judas was stealing from the money pot, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and in fact that his time was coming. And yet, 
the interesting thing is when Jesus said, somebody will betray me, the question is, who? Who is going to betray him? We see in verses 22 through 25 that the disciples were looking around. Jesus says in 21, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. You can imagine the looks on their faces as they're looking around saying, who's going to do it? Because each one of them would have said, it's not me. Who else could it be? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Nobody would fess up to it, of course. And yet, everybody's looking around. So John is leaning up against Jesus. Simon Peter says, hey, you're the beloved disciple. Why don't you ask Jesus who it is? So John says to Jesus, well, who is it? Who's going to betray you? Tell us, because we're all really anxious to find out. Of course, the one who was going to betray him knew completely who would betray him. So we see that, in fact, Jesus says, the one who would dip his morsel in with me. And we see in verse 27, in verse 26, Jesus then answered, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, the Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he said this to him. It's a little bewildering to look at this story and not see, well, Jesus just pointed Judas as his betrayer. You can't imagine that the other apostles would sit by idly, realizing who was going to betray the master, and not do anything about it. So for some reason, the message, the pointing out that Jesus had made, was missed by the other disciples. The apostles would have looked at each other and still not understood what was going on. But when Jesus spoke to Judas, Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. They mistook that phrase for, well, if you need to go buy something, go buy it. Go take care of the provisions. That's not the message that Jesus was giving them. And yet nobody except for Jesus and Judas understood what Jesus was telling them. The message for us that Jesus shows here is he didn't rebuke Judas for saying, you're going to betray me, leave. He didn't rebuke Judas for saying, Satan is in your heart. And yet he could have. He rightly could have. He could have said, I know you're going to betray me. I'm going to prevent it. I'm going to keep you from betraying me and kept it from happening. But why didn't he do that? Why didn't he stop what Judas was going to do? Why did he continue to treat Judas with love rather than calling him out as the betrayer? The message that we have here is that Jesus continues to treat everyone with love, even when he can see into the heart, even when he knows the, the, what drives you, the purpose that you have in your life, even when he realizes how lost you are, he will continue to love you. He will continue to try and work with you. He won't embarrass you or call you out, but he will call it like it is. He will say, do what you're going to do. Do it quickly. Now, when he's speaking here, is Jesus speaking to, to Judas or is he speaking to Satan? I heard someone once say he's speaking to Satan. Well, that's not the message that we have here at all. He said he was speaking to him. He spoke to him. He spoke to Judas. Why would he speak to Satan? He spoke to Judas because Judas was the one who made the decision. He's the one who made the choice to betray Christ. Satan came into his heart because Judas let him. Judas let Satan in 
but Judas was still responsible for the actions and the decisions that he made, even though he allowed Satan to come into his heart. Let's take a look at verses 31 through 35. After Judas had left, it says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Let's remember that he says these verses immediately after Judas leaves. Immediately after calling Judas out for betraying him, he continues to preach that we need to love one another. How difficult would it be to love somebody you know is soon to betray you? Is soon to turn you over to the, to the Roman authorities that you would be crucified, that you would die. How difficult would it be to love someone like that? And yet that's the example that Christ has given to us, that we love one another, even though he knew he was betrayed by Judas. I think there's another important lesson that we need to take from this. We spoke a little bit in the morning Bible study about the importance of being around good people, of being around believers of being around Christians who follow God, who recognize who Christ is and what he did for us. And absolutely, that is true. I, I, I will firmly believe and always believe that if you surround yourself with believers, that your life will be better, that your heart will be more open to hearing what God is, has to say to you. Compared to if you surround yourself with unbelievers, if you surround yourself with people who continue to ignore the promise that God has given to us. If we surround ourselves with believers, let, let's look, take a minute to look to your left, to look to your right, and see all of the people who are around you and the wonderful influences they've had on you, the time you've gotten to spend together and the faithfulness and the, the hope that you've given to each other as believers in Christ. It's a wonderful thing. And yet the unexpected lesson that we have here is it's not enough. Judas, for day in and day out, for three years, walked with Christ. He was with him every single day. I don't know about you, but I'd have to believe that if I were in his shoes, I would have been the biggest believer ever. I would have been faithful through everything. I would have done anything for him, recognizing who he was, what he's come to this earth to do. So while we look at how the apostles lived, we look at the decision that Judas made to betray Christ. And we realize that being surrounded with those who follow Christ isn't enough. That we will be called at the day of judgment to account for what we have done. Not what the person next to you or your parents or your children. Where is your life? Where is your heart? That's what we'll be called on the day of judgment. The responsibility that we have is to help each other, absolutely. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We are here for each other, to support each other, and to love each other. 
but your salvation is not dependent on the person next to you. Your salvation is not dependent on your best friends. Your salvation is dependent on your heart and your attitude. Now, as we are all responsible for that, let's always remember what the Bible says, to think of others more highly than ourselves. Let's remember the positive impacts and the attitudes that we can have to help our brothers and our sisters in our daily walks. There are so many things in this world that are difficult. And many times we may feel overwhelmed by problems that we have in our lives. But let's be there for helping others to realize that our role to encourage them and to lift them up. But let's also remember that we are responsible for our own salvation, for our heart, for our attitude, and our belief in Christ. That at the end of, the, at the end of time, when we're called before the judgment seat, we will be called to reckon for who we are not who he sat beside, or not who our friends were. Let's remember that in our life, and let's remember to be good examples and positive, but to remember and constantly reflect on where our heart is. Because if Judas can't be saved after spending three years with the apostles, I dare say it would be difficult for us to be saved by any of our good friends. But let's remember our own lives, and let's help others in this walk. So we see examples of humility in chapter 12 and 13. We see examples of where people knelt down before others to anoint them, to wash their feet, to do a, an act that was reserved for the lowliest of servants, and yet do that as a sign of honor and respect for them. Mary washing Jesus' feet with the pure nard and the smell following, flowing through the whole house. Jesus kneeling before the apostles one by one. And as he came to Judas, realizing what Judas was about to do to him, he washed his feet. He continued to love Judas to the end, all of the apostles to the end. So the message that we have today is that's the love that we're called to have. The love that we're called to have in and out, whether we know that we are the best of friends or whether we know we're about to be betrayed. It's not easy, but Jesus is our example. He has shown us what we should do. So the question for you today is, what is your attitude? Where is your heart? Have you put Christ on in baptism? Have you accepted his call? Have you realized the life eternal that he has promised to us? If you haven't and you need to put him on, this is an opportunity to do that. You've heard the word. If you believe what it says and you're willing to change your life, to turn your life around, Confess him as Lord and Savior. If you're willing to put him on in baptism, and if you dedicate yourself to living as he would have you to live, to live faithfully, as Revelation 2.10 says, live to the point of death, whether that's dying for your faith or whether that's being faithful until you die. Remain faithful, and he has promised us a crown of life. Where is your attitude and where is your heart today? If you put him on in baptism, but you've fallen away, realize that Satan has gotten into your heart. This is an opportunity to say, I will change my ways. I will go back to realizing who Christ is and what he has done for me. I will kick Satan out and I will let Christ back in because they both can't live together. Realize which master you will serve. Once you recognize that, as you have an opportunity to reply, won't you come as we stand and sing?